0: In our culture today, we're experiencing many divisions in almost every facet of society, whether it be economic, political, gender, cultural, racial, or religious divisions. To counteract these real and perceived divisions, there's been a concerted effort to instill in our cultural mindset the need to celebrate differences and diversity, especially in our interrelated and globalized society. As Craig Watts correctly notes, whether or not we are big fans of diversity, the fact is we are experiencing more and more of it, and it comes in all forms, a greater range of entertainment options, a wider selection of foods at the supermarket, more car companies and models than ever before, more ethnic restaurants, and the list goes on. During a routine trip to the mall, it's not that unusual to overhear two or three foreign languages. If you go to the hospital, some of the doctors treating you are likely to be from India, Egypt, South Africa. In any number of other places. Now, some people are enthusiastic about this increase in diversity. They see the richness of the differences as something that is beneficial to all of us. The mix of cultures and races and opinions provide opportunities to learn from others and grow in understanding. Hence, many call us to celebrate diversity. But others are not ready to party. Instead of finding reason for joy, Some find reason for fear and insecurity and even hostility. The old rules we used to take for granted have been shaken. Cherished convictions are challenged. Diversity has led to division, political, racial, gender, cultural, and economic division. There's always been some of this, but now it seems to be more prevalent. Whether diversity has led to divisions, or divisions has pushed the need to celebrate diversity and differences, this is a generation both young and old, that celebrates diversity and differences. If so, living differently apart from the world should be something celebrated and embraced by Christians, not something to hide or shun. As followers of Jesus Christ and new creations in Him, the Bible tells us we are called to be different from the world. Our perspectives, our lifestyles, our focus, our priorities should be different from this world. But this is something we have forgotten, or in our desire to fit in, we find it very difficult to take stands of conviction that differs from the majority conviction in this ever-changing world, where ironically, the norms and standards of what is acceptable seemingly change every year. In fact, the pressure to follow the crowd and be accepted causes us to unnecessarily worry, or we try to live up to others' expectations and acceptance and yet never to be fully accepted because of our connection with Jesus Christ. And it is in living in this tension that has caused many Christians to falter and waver in these challenging times. Therefore, it is in the embrace of living differently and not caring what the world thinks of us that we can remain unshakable in these challenging and changing times, because our difference is rooted in God's unchanging Word, and in a deeply personal and intimate relationship with Him. As we finish up our verse-by-verse expositional study in the book of 1 John, in our series titled "Unshakable," we want to now take a look at chapter 5, verses 14 to 21. So if you have your Bibles, would you please turn with me to the book of 1 John, chapter 5, as we study verses 14 to 21. 1 John, chapter 5, verses 14 to 21, and here in these last verses of John's letter, We want to draw out four differences we are to embrace and apply as Christians that will help us stand firm with conviction in these unique times. I read now verses 14 and 15. Now, this is the confidence that we have in Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of Him. Most people read these verses and love it because of selective reading, they assume that these verses say that if we ask God for anything in prayer, then God will listen to our prayers and grant us our request. But notice a very key and important phrase in verse 14, according to His will. Would you circle, highlight, and underline this important phrase, according to His will? Because the granting of our prayers by a God who listens is on the basis of His will and not our wants. Let me repeat that. The granting of our prayer requests by God is based on His will and not our wants. So how do we know if our prayers are in accordance with God's will? Well, to know God's will is to know who He is and what His Word says. And God's will, as revealed in the Scripture, includes things like the sharing of the gospel message to all, living out righteous and holy lives, the desire to live in obedience to God's commands, the confession of sins and other things that God desires of His people. So think about what you and I pray for on a daily basis. I'm sure about 90% or more of what we pray for is for ourselves. Lord, give me this and give me that. Lord, keep me healthy and protected. Lord, help me to do well on my tests. Lord, help my children have good grades. Lord, give me a great job. Help me to get promoted. Lord, allow me to enjoy the luxuries of life. It's all about me. And the things I pray for often have very little to do with my spiritual life or for other people. When was the last time you prayed and thanked God for your salvation? When was the last time you asked God to give you a passion for evangelism and discipleship? When was the last time you prayed that God would give you the humility to keep your pride in check? When was the last time you prayed that God would give you joy in obeying His commands? When was the last time you prayed that you would be more like Christ? What about prayer for others? When was the last time you prayed for the salvation of the world, specifically naming friends and family members whom you know have not yet placed their trust in Jesus Christ? When was the last time you prayed for missionaries serving on the front lines in creative access nations? When was the last time you prayed for Christians who are being persecuted for their faith? How many of you pray regularly for the church, its leaders, and for the church's effectivity to make a spiritual impact in the community? When was the last time you prayed for others who have spiritual, emotional, or physical needs? And while we should be praying for these things, we don't do it, and therefore we are self-centered in our prayers. Our prayers indicate a lot of what is on our heart and what is our focus. You see, when prayers are always about us and our wants, and we disregard God's will, then we become inward focused and we worry and are even frustrated with God as to why our prayers are not answered or why God is taking so long to answer our request. And often these internalized feelings will cause us to lose our conviction and a desire to stand firm for the Lord because, like a little child, Throwing a tantrum to get what they want. We often throw spiritual tantrums because God has not yet answered our prayers in accordance with our will. In Pastor Tim Keller's wonderful article, Growing My Faith in the Face of Death, he writes these poignant words as he was recently diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. My wife, Kathy, and I spent much time in tears and unbelief. We were both turning 70, but felt strong, clear minded incapable of nearly all the things we have done in the past 50 years. I thought I'd feel a lot older when we got to this age, Kathy said. We had plenty of plans and lots of comforts, especially our children and grandchildren. We expected some illness to come and take us when we felt really old, but not now, not yet. This couldn't be. What was God doing to us? The Bible, and especially the Psalms, gave voice to our feelings, Why, O Lord, do you stand far off? Wake up, O Lord, why are you sleeping? How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? A significant number of believers in God find their faith shaken or destroyed when they learn that they will die at a time and in a way that seems unfair to them. Before my diagnosis, Tim writes, i had seen this in people of many faiths. One woman with cancer told me years ago, I'm not a believer anymore. That doesn't work for me. I can't believe in a personal God who would do something like this to me. Cancer killed her God. What would happen to me? I felt like a surgeon who was suddenly on the operating table. Would I be able to take my own advice? One of the first things I learned was that religious faith does not automatically provide solace in times of crisis. A belief in God and an afterlife does not become spontaneously comforting and existentially strengthening. Despite my irrational conscious acknowledgement that I would die someday, the shattering reality of a fatal diagnosis provoked a remarkably strong psychological denial of mortality. Instead of acting on Dylan Thomas' advice to rage, rage against the dying of the light, I found myself thinking, what? No, I can't die. That happens to others, but not to me. When I said these outrageous words out loud, I realized that this delusion had been the actual operating principle of my heart. My friends, while we know we are to pray, and we do pray, what is the actual operating principle of your heart? That God has to give you everything you want because you are a Christian, or that you and I need to pray a different type of prayer, a prayer in accordance with God's will and not our will? You see, this is Jesus' own prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane before His death on the cross. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 39, the gospel writer Matthew writes this, He went out a little farther and fell on His face and prayed, saying, O my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as You will. He prayed this three times in the garden. Not as I will, but as You will. Like our Savior, is our prayer different from the world's prayer to false gods and ineffective shrines to get what we want? In effect, arm-twisting God into getting what we want. Or is it radically different? Is it a radically different type of prayer to willingly and prayerfully submit to God's will? Not my will, but Your will be done. As followers of Christ, John is calling us to celebrate a different kind of prayer, prayers that are according to God's will. You see, celebrating our differences, number one, a different kind of prayer, prayers in accordance with God's will. A different kind of prayer, prayers in accordance with God's will. These are difficult prayers because instead of seeing God as a genie who dispenses wishes based on our request, it acknowledges God rightfully for who He is as our sovereign Lord. For when we ask, we do not demand or we cannot insist, but we are willing to accept however the loving, sovereign God answers because it is based on His perfect will. Even in the sample prayer, the Lord taught His disciples to use as a guide. Remember that line, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So God may not heal us of our sicknesses. God may not make us as rich as our friends. God may not give us that job or that project, but it's okay because my prayers are different as followers of Jesus Christ. My prayers are in accordance with God's will, and I humbly submit to it. I read now verses 16 and 17. If anyone sees his brother sinning a sin, which does not lead to death, he will ask and he will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. There is sin leading to death. I do not say that he should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is sin not leading to death. In these verses, John is talking about two different consequences of sin. One consequence leads to premature death, and the other does not lead to it. The phrase, sin that leads to death, is talking about a Christian committing a sin so serious that it is punished by a premature, swift, physical death. We see this in the case of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. Now, we're not told what sins are so serious that it would precipitate such a judgment from God, or even how long one has to persist in their serious sin that would lead to God's swift judgment. And I believe the Bible doesn't tell us or give us the details of when the righteous and fair judge will enact this judgment so that we don't play the game of where we go right up to the edge of committing this serious sin, but not doing it. We're just told that in God's divine judgment, this is a very severe consequence with the implied warning that Christians should not sin or persist in sin, lest this consequence is applied. It should be noted that if a Christian dies suddenly, it doesn't necessarily mean they've committed this sin that leads to premature death. These verses are only saying that a severe consequence to certain serious or unrepentant sin is premature physical death. It should also be noted that if a Christian commits this very serious sin that warrants such a swift judgment that they will not lose their salvation, these verses only indicate that in this situation, there is no prayer that changes God's judgment on these Christians. And so, this should serve as a warning for all believers that we should strive to live a holy and righteous life. Now, why would John mention this matter in his letter? Because contextually and as a main emphasis, John was encouraging the Christian readers to actively pray for sinning brothers and sisters so that they would wake up from their life of sin, repent, and be restored so that their continual sin may not lead to this premature physical death judgment and in fact may lead to the prolonging of their lives. These verses serve as a reminder that all unrighteousness is sin, and that there are consequences to sin, with the ultimate consequence for a believer being premature physical death. This should serve as a wake-up call for how we view sin, and it has to be very different from how the world views sin. You see, the world proposes to us that living out a life of sin is full of joy and satisfaction, that a life of sin is entertaining and a right that you and I have, and the world somehow ties sinful living and associates it with happiness, and who doesn't want to be happy? But what the world doesn't tell you is that the joy and happiness associated with sin is temporary at best, and the entertainment value of sin is only fleeting, and then regret sets in. What the world doesn't reveal is that sin is not satisfying In fact, the consequences are severe and can lead to destruction whose effect goes beyond the individual who sins but affects their family and friends. Even in the secular book by Jack Englehart titled Indecent Proposal, which was made into a movie, understood the severe consequences of sin. In this book, when the billionaire John Gage offers David and Diana Murphy $1 million to spend the night with Diana this offer of instant wealth was accepted, and then everyone's life spiraled out of control with the eventual divorce of David and Diana and their deep regret of even accepting this offer in the first place. Sadly, people have engaged in sin for much less than a million dollars with the same severe consequence. You see, celebrating our differences, number two, a different view towards sin, admitting its severe consequences a different view towards sin, admitting its severe consequences. This is a very different way from how the world looks at sin. We should see sin for all of its ugliness and its accompanying severe consequences and the terrible effects it has on our lives and on the lives of our loved ones. But the problem of this generation is that no one likes to talk about sin. Everyone just wants to be happy and not to be bothered by the reminder of sin and the guilt feelings that come with it. This generation sees the Bible's definition of sin as being old-fashioned and out of touch with the current culture. And they see Christians as the ultimate killjoys who just want to suck the fun out of everything. And plus, no one likes people who just keeps talking about sin all the time and reminding them of its severe consequences. Someone once told me that they don't like to read the Bible because every time they read it, it convicts them of something they're doing that is wrong in the sight of God, and they don't like to feel guilty, so they don't read the Bible. This is the attitude that pervades our generation today, and we wonder why we have so many problems today. But the Bible from beginning to end talks about sin and warns against it, Because it requires constant reminders from God, because this world is so effective at selling sin to us without giving us the full details of what we're getting ourselves into and sin's severe consequences. It's like when children are little, parents keep reminding their children to look both ways before they cross the street. Why is something that is so simple to remember have to be constantly reminded to our children? because the allure of what is simply across the street often quickly makes the children forget that there are dangerous cars that are zooming by. In the same way, it's always the allure of sin that makes us forget its clear and present dangers. And therein lies the problem, because our attention is never drawn to its deadly allure, or we're not made aware of sin, or we choose to ignore the consequences of sin, that sin gets us into trouble. and That's why the Bible often speaks about sin, warning us of its danger and to avoid it. As followers of Christ, we are called to a different view of sin. We are to recognize its severe consequences and that it may even bring about premature physical death. I read now verses 18 to 20. We know that whoever is born of God does not sin, but he who has been born of God keeps himself and the wicked one does not touch Him. We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God in eternal life. Verses 18 to 20 summarizes some of the truths that the Apostle John had previously touched on earlier in his letter. In verse 18, there is the reminder that children of God should not sin because they are new creations in Christ, redeemed by the blood of Jesus from the shackles of sin. Therefore, Satan cannot touch us. We are protected from the wicked one as children of God, and nothing can happen to us that God doesn't allow. This truth is especially important because in verse 19, it reminds us that the whole world is under the control of Satan. It is a world which promotes a world system that seeks to deceive and destroy. And as children of God, the implication is not only are we not part of this world, but we are also therefore free to reject the world's teaching and the sinful lust it offers. It is a freedom that says we don't have to toe the line on what the world expects us to believe in and what the world wants us to accept. We are free to support a different team, We are free to support and express our allegiance with someone else, and that being the Lord Jesus Christ. Growing up in the United States, every morning in public school, we were all asked to stand up, turn and face the flag that was in the classroom, place our hands over our heart, and recite the Pledge of Allegiance. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. As you can see, this Pledge of Allegiance is seared into my memory, but there is another pledge that all of us as followers of Jesus Christ need to make, and that is the pledge to be in allegiance to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. There's a wonderful song by Ray Bolts, the Christian songwriter, and it's titled, I Pledge Allegiance to the Lamb, and it goes something like this. I pledge allegiance to the Lamb with all my strength, with all I am. I will seek to honor His commands. I pledge allegiance to the Lamb. I have heard how Christians long ago were brought before a tyrant's throne and they were told that He would spare their lives if they would renounce the name of Christ. But one by one they chose to die. The Son of God they would not deny. Like a great angelic choir sings, I can almost hear their voices ring. I pledge allegiance to the Lamb with all my strength, with all I am. I will seek to honor His commands. I pledge allegiance to the Lamb. Now that the years have come and the years have gone, but the cause of Jesus still goes on. And now our time has come to count the cost, to reject this world, to embrace the cross. And one by one, let us live our lives for the one who died to give us life. Till the trumpet sounds on the final day, let us proudly stand and boldly say, I pledge allegiance to the Lamb. With all my strength, with all I am, I will seek to honor His command. I pledge allegiance to the Lamb. To the Lamb of God who bore my pain, who took my place, who bore my shame, I will seek to honor His command. I pledge allegiance to the Lamb. My friends, where do your allegiance lie? Will you pledge allegiance to the Lamb daily? And the reason we can declare our full allegiance to the Lord is because, as verse 20 tells us, The one we place our trust in, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God Himself, is the only true God and provider of eternal life. You see, all of these great truths put together give us the confidence to live this life, that we are protected in this life and in the life to come. You see, celebrating our differences, number three, a different type of confidence, realizing we are protected in this life and in the next, a different type of confidence realizing we are protected in this life and in the next. While the whole world is under the control of Satan, we don't need to fear because our confidence is in the truth that we are protected as children of God to live in this hostile world. And that confidence is also in the realization that our salvation is protected because of Jesus Christ and the guarantee of eternal life is there. The assurance of our salvation is based on the security of the finished work of Christ on the cross and the sufficiency of Jesus' blood to forgive us of all of our sins. These truths should give Christians the full confidence of not worrying about what others think about us. Even if the world threatens us, we should not care because we have pledged our allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ. Then with that allegiance comes protection from God Almighty in this life and in the life to come with the assurance of eternal life. When Philip Brooks, author of A Little Town of Bethlehem, was seriously ill, he requested no friends come to see him. But when an acquaintance of his name, Robert Ingersoll, a famous anti-Christian propagandist, came to see him, he allowed him to come in right away. Ingersoll said, I appreciate this very much, especially when you aren't letting any of your close friends see you. Pastor Brooks responded, oh, I'm confident of seeing them in the next world, but this may be my last chance to see you. The certainty of our confidence is because we are protected in this present life and that our eternal destiny is assured. Finally, verse 21, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. What a way to end his letter. Here, John gives a simple, straightforward admonition to his readers as spiritual children to keep away from idols. The idols in view here can be actual idols and associated idolatrous practices that were very much a part of the polytheistic Roman and Hellenistic culture of that time. Or it can figuratively refer to anything that takes us away from our worship of the one true God. This is a very fitting warning to end his letter because it is the idols of our lives that take us away from having a deeply intimate relationship with Jesus Christ, which in turn will cause us to be more unsure instead of having the fortitude to remain unshakable in these challenging times. In his wonderful book, Counterfeit Gods, Tim Keller writes that an idol is anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything you seek to give you what Only God can give. And how can you tell if you're worshiping a counterfeit God? Keller writes, A counterfeit God is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. In fact, one of the signs that an object is functioning as an idol is that fear becomes one of the chief characteristics of life. When we center our lives on the idol, we become dependent on it. If our counterfeit God is threatened in any way, our response is complete panic. You see, the human heart takes good things like a successful career, love, material possessions, even family, and turns them into ultimate things. And so our heart deifies them as the center of our lives because we think they can give us significance and security, safety and fulfillment if we attain them. Our hearts are idol-making factories that make good gifts from God ultimate in our lives, thereby replacing God in our affections. Thus, anything can be an idol, and really everything has been an idol to one person or another. The great deception of idols is we are prone to think that idols are only bad things, but evil is far more subtle than this. We think that idols are bad things, but that is almost never the case. The greater the good... The more likely we are to expect they can satisfy our deepest need and hopes. Anything can serve as a counterfeit God, especially the very best things in life. What are your idols in life? What occupies your mind when you have nothing else to think about? Where do you look for significance and security? What do you fear losing, my friends? What could you not live without? So, is there any hope? Keller writes, yes. If we begin to realize that idols cannot simply be removed, they must be replaced. And deep idols have to be dealt with at a heart level. We must look to Jesus. What breaks an idol's power over us is not just redoubled effort to follow the example of Christ. Rather, it is deepening your understanding of the salvation of Christ, what you have in Him, and then living out the changes that that understanding makes in your heart, the seed of your mind. Will and emotion. Faith in the gospel restructures our motivation, our self-understanding and identity, our view of the world, behavioral compliance to rules without a complete change of heart will be superficial and fleeting. If we are deeply moved by the sight of His love for us, it detaches our hearts from other would-be saviors. We stop trying to redeem ourselves through our pursuits and relationships because we are already redeemed. In short, we have to know to be assured that God so loves, cherishes, and delights in us that we can rest our hearts in Him for our significance and security and handle anything that happens in life. Indeed, the living God who revealed Himself both at Mount Sinai and on the cross is the only God who, if you find Him, can truly fulfill you, and if you fail Him, can truly forgive you. And that is why John ends his letter in this manner, with an admonition calling his readers lovingly little children and telling them to stay away from idols so that they can pursue an intimate relationship with their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and to continue to abide in Him. And inherently, this last verse is a reminder that we have to have a different approach to our priorities. We often think that as long as we put Jesus Christ number one on our list of priorities, That's all we have to do to achieve spiritual success. However, in reality, the other things on that priority list will often vie for that number one slot, and more often than not, it will work its way to push out Christ from the number one slot. That is why there's this admonition to keep away from idols, meaning remove everything that serves to distract from having Christ as our single priority in life. You see, celebrating our differences, number four, a different approach to priorities, removing everything that distracts us from focusing on Jesus. A different approach to priorities, removing everything that distracts us from focusing on Jesus. It's hard to do, but it has to be done because the idols of our lives affect our relationship with Jesus, be it the media that entertains us or the pursuits we have in life. Unless these things that distract us are removed, then Jesus will never be a priority in our life. Let me end with this story. During the 14th century, Reynald III was a duke in what is now Belgium. As a result of a violent quarrel, Reynald's younger brother Edward successfully revolted against him. When Edward captured Reynald, he built a room around him featuring a window and a door and promised him that the day he left the room, his title and property would be returned to him. The problem with this arrangement was that Reynald was grossly overweight and could not fit through the openings in the room. Reynald needed to lose weight before he could leave the room, and Edward knew that his older brother could not control his appetite and sent him delicious food every day. As you may imagine, Reynald grew fatter during this time. Anytime someone accused Duke Edward of treating Reynald cruelly, he said, My brother's not a prisoner. He may leave when he so wills. Reynald stayed in that room for ten years and wasn't released until after Edward died in battle. By then, his health was so ruined, he died within a year. He was a prisoner of his own appetite. Just as Reynald was enslaved by his appetite, sin will enslave all those who yield to it. That's why we are called to live differently with the help of the Holy Spirit. We don't have to be prisoners to our own sin cycle and the bonds of the cultural expectations of this sinful world. We can choose to live differently and celebrate our diversity and difference from this world with the help of the Holy Spirit, to live forth a life that has a different kind of prayer, prayers in accordance with God's will, a different view towards sin, admitting its severe consequences, a different type of confidence, realizing we are protected in this life and in the next A different approach to priorities, removing everything that distracts us from focusing on Jesus. My friends, let's remember to celebrate our diversity and differences from the world in which we live, because as children of God, we have been called out to live lives for Jesus Christ, to be distinct so that we can give the world a reason for the hope that we have. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for the book of 1 John which reminds us that we are called out to live differently, that we are to abide in You and through our relationship with You, live out transformed lives. So often, Lord, we live similar to the world and we are not distinct. And because we are not distinct, we are confused and worried in these changing times. But Lord, when we ground ourselves in the realization that in You, we can live differently, secured in our faith, secured in our relationship with you, secured in our eternal life, that we can live unshakable even amidst these changing and challenging times. May you encourage each one of us who has studied your word. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen.